Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Thank you so much for being here today. The fact that you show up to church, that you still believe that something good can take place in this kind of gathering is a profound act of hope and grace. So thank you so much for being a part of Commons today. My name is Bobby, and I serve the community as one of the pastors on the team. It is a joy to be here in Inglewood today. So, how's your summer been? Tell me, do you like that question? How's your summer been? It's a question that you can't escape at this time of year. The evenings are cooler, the days are shorter, the mountains are, I've seen it, snowier. Fall is definitely coming. So when you run into people that you haven't seen all summer and they ask you, how's your summer been? How does that question make you feel? I dread, (laughs) I dread this question. I mean, maybe that's a little bit of an overstatement, but thanks to social media, I observe so many people in our community take far off trips and climb big mountains and camp by fast flowing rivers, and I am happy for you, I really am, but my summer has been much, much, much more low key. I've just been around. So sometimes I feel like my summer has just been really small. And it's important for me to not actually compare our summers, whether it's big or small adventures, huge family gardens or tiny pots on your balcony of herbs, that's me, or faraway trips, or just catching up with a friend over a beer on a brewery. Join me in gratitude for all of the shapes and the smells and the sizes of our summer, especially with the fall being right around the corner. Again, we've talked about this, but our fall launch is just two weeks away, so mark your calendars. September 8th, Commons celebrates five years. Right? Five years of being a community together and the start of our sixth year. Last week, Yelena was here in Inglewood, and she unpacked this thoughtful take on worship and creation in Psalm 65. Her observation that worship can begin with a whisper or with silence rather than a song or well-worded prayer is a comforting invitation. Partnered with the invitation to stillness, We see how the tug of power and fear has the writer of Psalm 65 seek a a warrior God. But when we zoom out, we find a more profound invitation to honor difference and make space so that everyone can flourish. Well, today in our summer Psalm series, we are hitting up to, that's right everybody, two psalms. We're headed for Psalm 99 and 100. The first is an enthronement psalm, and the second is a hymn of praise. And we are going to talk about tired old metaphors, the infinite divine, praise as play, and God of astonishment. I am calling this sermon, What to Do When a Metaphor Doesn't Work for You Anymore. So before we dive in, let's pray together. 
our loving God, as we consider the close of the summer and prepare ourselves for the fall, we lean into your nearness. In summer, in winter, in spring and fall, all of creation speaks of your beauty, your mystery, your persistent patience. For those of us feeling some anxiety in this season, won't you meet us with a moment of peace? For those of us feeling the heaviness and the uncertainty of a season, God, won't you meet us with a marker of your kindness in any of the chaos that we feel right now? For those of us feeling a great sense of longing and looking for hope, won't you connect with our yearning? We pray with gratitude for simple things, but also for really complicated things too. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, I had plans to be out of town for a class, but then some details for the class got a little bit screwy, so I decided to skip it and just stick around Calgary instead. Now, what that means is that I wasn't expected, nor was I needed, at the 7 p.m. service at our Kensington Parish. So when my aunt texted to see if I was in fact in town and could, in fact, go with her to here, Jason Isbell, any fans? Probably not a one. <laughs> Jason Isbell at the Jack Singer, he's a real person. I jumped at it. Now, I have a very special place in my heart for Jason Isbell, and a lot of that fondness actually has to do with just one metaphor. Sure, sure, he's a great songwriter and his music is fabulous, but there is one song that rocked me, scared me a little bit, but also resonated. It's Isbell's song, 24 Frames, where he sings this chorus. You thought God was an architect, now you know. He's something like a pipe bomb ready to blow. And everything you built that's all for show goes up in flames, in 24 frames. Like what now? God is a pipe bomb? What does that even mean? Well, some days I think I know, but other days I have no idea. But every time I listen to the song, I think, wow, God is wild like that, surprising, overwhelming, maybe even explosive. I am down with the Americana sound of the song and the 4-4 time signature and the harmonies that haunt, but it's the metaphor that my heart really needs. So today's psalm has a standout metaphor too, so let's take a look. We are looking at Psalm 99, verses one to four. The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. God sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. God is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. God is holy, the King is mighty. 
Now, Psalm 99 comes from book four of five in the divisions of the book of Psalms. What that means is that it's from the section of the songs collected to respond to the crisis of exile. Remember, ancient Israel is often an underdog with heaps of leaders who fail them and the constant threat of being overpowered by bigger and more ruthless empires. So book four shifts the feeling of the Psalter from despair and lament to hope and praise. Even though they're not out of trouble, Ancient Israel sings about Yahweh as the one who reigns, as the one who is king. Now, can I be really honest with you? Like, like I want to be really honest with you. I hate this metaphor of God as king. And I know, I know, that's severe, isn't it? I mean, these words are in the Bible. So you might think, what are you even talking about, Bobby? But hear me out. The metaphor of God as king, so distant and earth-shaking, so over us and other, is at this point in my life and for the last 15 years or so, not for me. I'm not saying that it's not for you. You might love it. In fact, we sing beautiful songs every week with these exact metaphors and images. So it might be the metaphor that really works for you. Naming God as king might give you a great deal of hope. And I am not, hear me, I am not trying to take that away from you. But let's at least see where this king metaphor comes from. First off, the language of Psalm 99 has traces of what the ancient world calls the combat myth. And scholar Richard Clifford says that the combat myth tells the story of a force that threatens the cosmic order of the universe. The force, or a monster, instills fear and confusion in the assembly of the gods. In turn, the assembly of the gods trusts in a young god to defeat the chaos monster. And said chaos monster is defeated, the young god is elevated, and order is restored. That's your basic combat myth. Now, in the hands of ancient Israel, we see traces of combat myth in the Psalms, specifically here with this enthronement psalm. The particulars of the monster or enemy aren't named. And that's fine because the Psalms speak in general terms so that they can transcend the particular time and place. And what's important to the people is that Yahweh reigns. Psalm 99 gives God this enthronement and the Ark of the Covenant between two cherubim. So with the appropriation of a myth, with the ancient symbol of the Ark and these mythic creatures, the people reference God as their king. Whatever is against them, they trust that their God takes the throne and the cosmic order is restored. Now, the interesting thing about the metaphor of king is that it's not everywhere in the Bible. 
In his book on the Psalms, Jewish scholar Nahum Sarna acknowledges that yes, the metaphor for God as king occurs many, many times in the Hebrew Bible, but Sarna says that there's no way to know from where we sit how early in Israel's history the projection of the human political institution onto God took place. What we do know is that this concept of the divine as king was prevalent in the ancient world long, long before Israel even showed up. So in grappling with the king metaphor, it's important to note that nowhere in the divine revelation at Sinai, meaning when the law was given to Moses, is there a monarchic framework for seeing or sensing the divine. Furthermore, when you look through what Sarna says are the theophoric proper names in Israel's history, meaning the names that bear the Hebrew term king right in them, Melech, you only find three names in all of those lists and genealogies, just three, Malkiel, Abimelech, and Elimelech. This is a culture where names tell stories and state values, and none of these names are actually even original to Israel. They date back way before Israel and are therefore not particularly original to them in their construction. Now, stick with me here. It's important to notice this stuff, to dig it up, to examine it, because God as king is just not a given. In Sarna's world's words, it's a socio-political institution firmly entrenched throughout the lands of the ancient Near East. So when, in the 11th century BCE, the Israelites suffer tremendous defeat at the hands of the Philistines, they borrow powerful words. When they feel anything but powerful, when their families are hauled off to foreign places, when they themselves are far from home, when their leaders fail them, when the wealthy rig the system, the people look around at the world that they actually live in and they say, we do need a king. We need a king who will help us. How great are words, right? How great are words that we can borrow them and bend them and claim them as our own. The world, your world, changes all the time. It's not realistic to think that your words won't change too. They can, they will, they need to. I recently read a list of metaphors for God in one of my very many nerdy theology books. And I keep going back to this list. I read it as a prayer and I wonder what new metaphors I need for God right now. So I offer you this list to do the same. Do you need God as your liberator, comrade, creator, mother, friend, rock, father, thunder, lover, brother, teacher, sister, light, fire, defender, sustainer, nurturer, advocate? Do you need a God like that?
Our language may be limited, but that is okay because God is infinite and perfectly willing to work with us just the way that we are. But before we throw this king baby out with the bathwater, let's at least examine where the kind of king that Israel longs for. So in verse four, the king is mighty, the king loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob, you have done what is just and right. And the description of the king Israel longs for is one who loves, loves justice. And the parallelism in verse four underscores justice with equity, equity. This is an ethical word in Hebrew, meshar, and it's tied up with the wisdom tradition, which is all about the art of living. And my good friend Jody is one of the wisest and most equity-seeking people I know. And she says justice is all about shalom. And shalom arrives when nothing is missing and nothing is broken. So if king for you is about justice, the care of the poor, the dignity of all people, the love of God for everyone, then go ahead and keep it. But we live in a world where presidents lie and princes are tangled up with abusive financiers and the corporations preference shareholders and their wealth at the expense of those who simply need a living wage. So yes, king metaphor is muddled for me. And I'm guessing it could be a bit muddled for you too. And if that's the case, we are in fabulous company. Political refugee and a missionary to the poor and a theologian by the name of Ada Maria Izazi Diaz offers us an alternative to this language of king, which is all too often tied up with oppressor rather than the liberator. And she writes in a footnote, a footnote of all places about the option to use the word kin, K-I-N, as in kin dumb, as in you belong as kin in the family of God. So her footnote goes like this. Two reasons compel me not to use the usual word employed by English Bibles, kingdom. First, it is obviously a sexist word and presumes that God is male. Bit of a zing there. Second, the concept of kingdom in our world today is both hierarchical and elitist. The same reasons hold for not using rain, she argues. The word kingdom, that's K-I-N dash D-O-M, makes it clear that when the fullness of God becomes a day-to-day reality in the world at large, we will all be sisters and brothers, kin to each other. Language matters. Language makes worlds. So let's make sure that our language for God contributes to a more just world. Believe it or not, Psalm 99 
features so much more than a sky king ruling over us. Sure, the metaphor reads as such, but there's collaboration in the heart of this God. Verses six and seven read, Moses and Aaron were among God's priests. Samuel was among those who called on God's name. They called on the Lord and God answered them. God spoke to them from the pillar of cloud and they kept God's statutes and decrees that God gave them. Now, we don't have a lot of time to get into this, but some of you Bible nerds may notice that Samuel did not hear God speak from a pillar of cloud. That business belongs to Moses and Aaron in Exodus. But of course, the scriptures aren't meant to be read literally. We read them literarily. So these boys in the Bible, they represent God's collaboration with priests and prophets and all kinds of peculiar people. Even the divine, who in the psalm causes the earth to shake and who gathers worshipers at a footstool, stoops down to be present in this human struggle. Now, here's what that actually looks like. Ada Maria Azazi Diaz tells a crowd at Harvard Divinity School that her mother used to tell her that she should not ask God to free her from struggle. Instead, be happy that you have something good and real to struggle against. Ask God to give you strength and la lucha in the struggle. As long as God gives you energy for the struggle, her mother assures her you will be all right. With God, good power is shared power. In the language of the Psalms, a king chooses priests and prophets to live the life with the divine right here, right now. Moses, Aaron, Samuel, Adamaria, Azazi Diaz, and her mother, you and me, given strength for this struggle. These songs of praise in the Psalms are about seeing the world as God sees the world in flux, full of seasons that move us from death to life and life to death, a world that is held by an infinite God, the energy behind all of our energy. Now here's the last thing that I wanna say about Psalm 99 before we turn the page to Psalm 100. Yahweh, the name for God, appears seven times in this enthronement psalm. And God's description as holy is there three times. The psalm ends like this. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at God's holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. The number seven in Jewish symbolism is super special. Seven marks a sacred pattern of all things. Seven days of creation, seven symbols in Joseph's dreams, seven chords on David's harp. And the number three represents completeness. We read three times that God is holy, holy, holy. So when you trip over a metaphor that you don't like, which is perfectly allowed, or you find yourself singing a song that kind of weirds you out, or you wonder about a model for God that honestly seems downright abusive, 
You can move past those terms, those phrases, those models into something far greater. You will not, not, not exhaust the divine. You don't have to abandon this beautiful, diverse tradition just because there are interpretations within it that you no longer trust. God is infinitely bigger than all of that and also infinitely closer to holy, holy, holy. Yahweh times seven, poetry and mystery and reversal. Oh, you think you want a king, Jesus asks us? If you call me a king and you want to follow me, then know that you will have to die to live. Nothing escapes the great metaphor of resurrection. Pile up all the rules and dogmas and I'll radically include everyone you leave behind. And I know that sometimes you will want to leave yourself behind because you will hurt so much. But trust me here, Jesus says, I will meet you in the storm. I will meet you in your heartbreak. I will meet you in your quiet desperation. Now, our second psalm, Psalm 100, is a hymn of praise. The ancient community sings the song as they go up to the temple. The song is exuberant, and it is joyful, and it is bursting with life. And listen as I read it for how God is involved with the people and how they are involved with the life of God. Listen for the verbs. I'll try to count them. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before God with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is God who made us and we are God's. We are God's people, the sheep of God's pasture. Enter God's gates with thanksgiving and God's courts with praise. Give thanks to God and praise God's name. For the Lord is good, and God's love endures forever. God's faithfulness continues through all generations. So with seven imperatives, seven instructing verbs, the song invites the people to make a joyful noise, to worship, to come near, to know, to enter, to give thanks, to praise all of this as they enter the temple of Yahweh. Now, let's survey the context. In the Hebrew scriptures, God makes a dwelling place among the people in the tabernacle and then the temple. And in the New Testament, God is found in the person of Christ and then in the church, Christ's body. And Eugene Peterson helps us understand what that actually means for us when he said, Christ plays in 10,000 places. It means that the temple, the church, They are, well, they're everywhere. Put poetically by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush is a fire with God. So praise is kind of like play. It's getting your hands dirty and your feet sore. It's being fully alive in your body and in the world where everything is sacred. Common shrubs, 
places where God can be found. Take a tip from the psalmist and this hymn of praise. Choose seven imperatives and lean into them in this season. Something like go, think, thank, ask, move, swim, bow. Actions are spiritual play, and play shapes our imagination for God. Now let's go back to our question. What do you do when a metaphor for God just doesn't work for you anymore? And I'm gonna answer this question with a story and then a poem. Cool? Cool. So last spring, I was wandering around downtown Victoria on a Bateman family vacation. I married into a family that takes big trips for big celebrations like 40th birthdays and 50th wedding anniversaries. Thankfully, I'm really into it. So one day, I was wandering around Victoria and I went to Monroe's bookstore. Maybe you've been there. It's a real gem of Canadian independent bookstores. Now, this may sound a bit strange, but I kind of believe in book magic. This is when books kind of call to you from a shelf, like, Bobby, Bobby, you want to read me? Does that happen to you? Some of you, yes, you get me, thank you. So I was perusing the bookshelves and I ended up in the poetry section and was soon holding this book in my hands, Lorna Crozier's God of Shadows. So I was in right away. And I flipped to the table of contents and I found these titles and many more. God of Arithmetic, God of Dogs, God of Goodbyes, God of Last Resort, God of Next to Nothing, God of Astonishment. Now remember, as much as the scriptures, so much of the scriptures are written as God's word to us, but the Psalms are an attempt for us to find our voice, to find our own words for God. The Psalms are poetry. So here, I want you to listen to what that sounds like in the vernacular of our day. Listen for a change in metaphors for God. Some of you may even want to close your eyes because the images are so good. So this poem, or what I'm calling a modern psalm, is called God of Astonishment. And again, it's by Lorna Crozier. Here it goes. When Yahweh reveals himself to man, bushes burn, the mountains tremble, and the wings of his six-winged angels batter the air with thunder. The God of astonishment goes for a subtler theophany, the quiver of the rare bat that shows itself in daylight, dipping into the pond, then perching upright in the rafters of the tea house, spreading its wings with joy. The multitude of spider crabs that scatter in low tide going sideways, as sore afraid as you to face what's ahead and what's behind. The common cockroach that, if decapitated, remains alive, its head still thinking. 
the jackrabbit jump of a woman's heart when she hears her husband of 30 years pull into the driveway in his red truck, its windows down, an old song on the radio, and then his words as the screen door slams, I'm home. God speaks to us like that in clear tones and not in riddles. Yet sometimes we walk right through her on our way. When we do that, when we miss her brightness in the morning on the Quonset's roofs, in the yellow head of certain blackbirds, she's tempted to startle us in our tracks, to place her fiery mouth upon our mouths and fill our lungs with marigolds and bees. I mean. Come on, how stunning is that? Lorna Crozier calls God the one who astonishes. And Jason Isbell sings, you thought God was an architect? God's something like a pipe bomb ready to blow. And I've been thinking about God not so much as king, but as a key is the one who unlocks every door to myself and to my experience of the world. And whoa, would you look at that? Is the one standing behind all locked doors, ready and willing to be so near to me and everything I care about. What is it for you? Who is God for you? If what the Apostle Paul says is true, that God is over all, through all, and in all, then there is no shortage of metaphors for how you can speak about God. So go ahead, search them out, and then speak them up. We need to hear about this God, the God who astonishes you too. Please join me in prayer. God of astonishment, of big summer adventures and little summer happenings, we thank you for your mystery, your love, your stunning creation. Jesus, you are our friend, our comrade, our key. You are about the work of our healing, and you are near to the ways that we suffer. You say, surely, surely, I am with you through it all. So Spirit of the living God, present with us now. Enter the places of longing and language and our woundedness, and heal us of all that harms us. Amen.